first reading is a stanza from a long Mary Oliver poem. On thy wondrous works I will meditate. I'd been looking for a poem that uh, could convey an image of an ideal minister. And this is the best I can come up with. Um, and she mentions a man here. So I'm not going to change her words, but put it through a gender filter if you need to. I know a man of such mildness and kindness, it is trying to change my life. He does not preach, teach, but simply is. It is astonishing, for he is Christ's ambassador, truly, by rule and act. But more, he is kind with the sort of kindness that shines out, but is resolute, not fooled. He has eaten the dark hours, and could also, I think, soldier for God, riding out under the storm clouds against the world's pride and unkindness, with both unassailable sweetness and tempering word. And the second reading conveys an image of an actual minister. It's from a sermon prosaically titled Sermon on Ministry, given about a decade ago by a former Episcopal priest, Preston Mears, who was ordained in the 1960s. And at the time, Mears was a social worker and a member of Davies Memorial UU Church in Maryland. Comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, bring pastoral healing to the broken, preach inspirational sermons that are intellectually demanding, Coordinate community organizations to feed the hungry and house the homeless. Assist in denominational affairs. Be politically astute without being political. Set up the tables and turn the lights out on the way out. Work 75 hours a week and take Mondays off if no one decides you are needed. We ministers need to keep our egos trimmed to size and at the same time, be wary of getting lost in all those expectations. Day to day, we can get caught up in our commitment to have our community be the beloved community that the church is called to be. It has happened to me, we can lose ourselves believing that if we meet all the expectations, the church will come together and be the beloved community. The goal is wonderfully seductive. No matter how talented or how hard we work though, we can't make it happen. The only way we can be poised between our egos and other people's expectations is if we understand ministers are sojourners. We are people who serve for a season and then move on that others may come along and meet the new season. Thus end the readings. The talk this morning is a revised version of one I presented a little more than 10 years ago in January of 2008, when we were also beginning a ministerial search process here at North Lake. 10 years, poof. If you are a seminarian, 
hoping to enter the parish ministry. Sooner or later, one of your professors is going to say something like this. If in your first two years of parish ministry, some people in your church try to toss you out, you've probably not done a very good job. And if at the end of seven years, some people in your church have not tried to toss you out, you've probably not done a very good job. <laughs> and another saying you'd get is, ministers have only two choices. They can leave too soon, or they can leave too late. And I'm starting today with the topic of leaving because that's what we are engaged in. We were engaged in here at Northlake for a good part of 2017. Our previous minister, the Reverend Marion Stewart, accepted a call to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Columbus, Ohio. And there was a wonderful send-off celebration for her on June 18th. But, as many of you also know, some of that leave-taking process had been painful with some members feeling hurt and wondering, how could this happen? Nevertheless, it's good, even at the very beginning of a search for a new settled minister, to know and to be aware that in time, after sojourning with us for a while, are still as yet to be full-time settled minister will take his or her leave of Northlake. It's good for us to know now that that minister will not have been able to make us a beloved community or keep us a beloved community. That would have been up to us. It's good to know now that there will be people who will have thought good riddance when that minister left. It's even good to know now that after our yet-to-be-called and settled minister has left, there will be another interim transition period and another search for a minister who will be a match for what Northlake will have become. But the future perfect is rather tiresome. So I also think it's good to be right here, right now, in this present moment at Northlake when we are fortunate to have an interim minister, the Reverend Jim Vanderweel, with us for two years, when our board is making and has made some very hard decisions that will bring us through this two-year transition period, and when all the teams and committees are aware of the opportunities that lie ahead for Northlake. Now on to the 10 C's. Back 10 years ago, I sang in the choir and there was rehearsals every Sunday night. And a few weeks before the first version of this talk, after a choir rehearsal, I was talking to some of the altos and sopranos. I said I was planning a talk on the 10 C's of ministry, not knowing I already had a list, without a nanosecond's hesitation, they started giving me C words that I might use, and here are some of their suggestions. The choir ladies are very sweet, but clearly paragons of another C word, contrarian. 
For the real C words, I'm grateful to David Pohl, former director of ministry for the Unitarian Universalist Association. And I've shamelessly stolen not only his list, but many of his words and expressions for this talk. And one thing I have changed is the order. I'm reversing the order because I ascribe high significance to the last C word on his list. The enterprise fails without this. Number 10, a sense of the comic in life. The search committee will present an imperfect, all too human candidate for ministry to this imperfect, all too human congregation, and we're headed for trouble if we forget that imperfect, all too human stuff. A minister no less than others, and perhaps more than most, needs a healthy sense of humor and an awareness of his or her limits. Absurdity, incongruity, foolishness, and egos abound, so all of us need to be able to laugh or at least smile when we find ourselves or others contributing to the pile. Number nine, well, yeah. <clears throat> a minister should be a good communicator a minister should project, not mumble, shape a coherent message, not ramble. It's reasonable to expect that a minister will have something to say and be able to say it well. A minister should be able to teach, counsel, and empower members of the congregation. In short, a minister needs to have what it takes to be an agent of our faith's heritage and vision. Number eight. A minister needs to relate personally and professionally to colleagues, both to UU ministers and those in the interfaith community. Loners diminish themselves and shortchange their colleagues. Number seven, in our movement, leadership is democratic, not authoritarian. Democratic leadership, nevertheless, is the willingness to be out front and upfront in risking initiatives and suggesting tactics and goals. It's not an abdication of initiative or advocacy. I don't want our minister to tell me what to do, but I do want him or her to tell me what he or she believes ought to be done. It's a balance. Ministers neither diffident nor arrogant. Congregations neither anti-clerical or minister-centric. The consultative and cooperative minister represents the middle way of Aristotle, listens as well as speaks, learns as well as teaches, shares the challenges and burdens of leadership rather than monopolizing or relinquishing them. Number six, a good minister like a chemical catalyst helps to make things happen, galvanizes people into action, provides at times just the impetus to bring to pass what had previously been just the spark of an idea. The catalytic minister works to develop a shared ministry with members of the congregation because all the ministry a church needs cannot be provided by one person alone. Number five, some of us may be writing the great American novel or developing an art form or composing music that will be played centuries hence. 
the rest of us might harbor fantasies of doing such things. But we can all hope to cultivate a first-hand relationship to reality, to be original in the sense of listening to our own response to life and being courageous enough to share it. We can be open to new, perhaps disturbing ideas and ways of doing things, not venerating either the new or the old, but willing to hear out someone with a new idea. Or try something to see if it works. Or deliberately shape something new with the stamp of our own character on it. We should expect this of our minister as well. Number four. Caring is healthy and liberating when it is rooted in a vision of others as our brothers and sisters. Flesh of our flesh, kin for whom we feel kindness and empathy. An extension of the caring ministry is concern for the larger community, especially for the voiceless, the dispossessed, those who do not have or do not believe they have any power to change their situation of suffering or oppression. In religious terms, caring is prophetic as well as pastoral. A minister is called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and a congregation cannot forget that. How deeply will our minister care about the struggle for peace and justice, bread and shelter in the world? A solid minister reconciles the pastoral and prophetic, since both spring from a spirit of caring and a resolve that what we claim for ourselves, we wish for others. Number three, it is reasonable to hope a minister will be cultured in the sense of being reasonably learned, informed, and interesting as a person. A minister should cultivate a Catholicity of tastes. A cultured minister is acquainted with the arts and science, with religion, politics, sports, and TV. How else can there be contact and communication with people where they are? Paul was speaking about this to a group of ministers some years ago, and this reference is dated, but I'm dated too. He was pointing out to this group that a cultured person would, for instance, be able to identify both Beverly Sills and John Havlicek. And then a, a voice came from the back, that's easy, Beverly Sills is a forward for the Boston Celtics. <laughs> we, could, we could update that with maybe like Renee Fleming and Steph Curry, and Renee Fleming is the player that uh, said she wasn't going to go to the White House, and then the occupant of the White House, uh, in a peak, fit of peak and illogic, rescinded the invitation. Number two, calling. This is a big one, on a par with comic. Here's what one minister said to our congregation about her calling. This is Ann Felton Hines, minister of the Emerson UU Church in Canoga Park, California. I felt the call simply while driving along the Pasadena freeway, and whatever it was that issued the call seemed to have far more mundane objectives than saving souls or the world. I'd been divorced a couple of years. I was raising two young children while working as a secretary and volunteer coordinator at the Alcoholism Center, uh, Al Alcoholism Council of Greater Los Angeles. 
I loved my job, but I knew I didn't want to be a secretary forever. And it occurred to me, driving home that evening, that all the things I loved doing, being with people, counseling, creating worship services at my UU church, participating in social justice projects, even serving on committees, all these things I could do as a minister. When ministers talk to other ministers, however, about this topic, they strike a much more serious tone. Here are a couple of examples. First, what Patrick O'Neill, who's former minister of this church in the 70s and 80s, had to say to a group of newly fellowshipped Unitarian Universalist ministers. This is about a dozen years ago at a general assembly. I cannot urge you enough if you take up the ministry at this point in our history, young colleagues. Be aware, do not take on this mantle merely to save your own soul. Rather, we need you to become ministers as the poet urges to spend your souls, spend them lavishly and wantonly in service to the world. I entreat you, do not use your trusted office to take refuge while the world around you is going to hell. Do not employ your preaching talents to give comfort to the already too comfortable. Man, if I was a newly fellowship minister in that audience, uh, I'd be sinking down in my seat a little. And here's what David Pohl says. As we have sought to professionalize our calling, to be treated in a more business-like manner regarding compensation, benefits, sabbatical leaves, and the like, all in a letter of agreement, we sometimes encourage a climate where a covenant of trust is replaced by a contract of law. Similarly, some laypersons lacking experience with our congregations and movement import attitudes and practices incompatible with a called ministry. They may in fact view ministers as hirelings accountable to them. Both ministers and congregations need to strike a healthy balance so that the best qualities of professionalism and calling are strengthened. For example, ministers might remember that a sense of calling renders talk about a 40-hour work week unprofessional and inappropriate. The minister who invokes the response, that's not my job, when asked by lay leaders to lend a hand with administrative and institutional tasks, may lack this sense of calling. For us who practice it, the profession of ministry should be something we love, not loathe, something that enriches rather than demeans us, a calling, not a chore. All of us need to remind ourselves that ministers are called, not hired, the difference is significant. That's David Pohl. And number one, ministers of character have what might be called personal authenticity, genuineness, or transparency. The absence of phoniness and self-importance. UU ministers don't take on the priestly role in the same sense as, say, Lutheran or Anglican clergy. Nevertheless, a kind of authority accompanies the role of minister in certain situations, such as counseling, 
rites of passage and preaching. That authority comes not from our denomination, but from the minister's character. And Paul concludes, my model minister in summary is a person of character and culture. He or she has a sense of calling to the ministry, seeks to be caring, creative, catalytic, consultative, collegial, competent, and to survive under the heavy weight of all these expectations, comic. How such a minister comes into being is beyond my understanding. Perhaps it is a gift of the grace of God. Our ministerial search committees are giving increased priority to them rather than to an assumed uh, ability to deliver the institutional success symbols of increased membership and budget. While we may be tempted to regard the 10 C's as perfectionistic or Pollyanna-ish, the truth is, I believe, something different. A good many ministers do embody these qualities in their personal and professional lives, disproving the argument that such a model of ministry is a fantasy. What congregations and ministers need is the wisdom to give such qualities priority. <laughs>